we are so thankful for our missionaries and so delighted to have those with us who represent the Lord Jesus Christ in various parts of the world as the gospel of sovereign free grace is preached. Most of you have met our missionaries, but uh, we will be asking them during the prayer time to come up and give to us their top one or two prayer requests. And at that time, if you've not seen all of our missionaries that are represented in our conference, you will see them at that time and at other times during our missions conference. We welcome to our pulpit this morning Dr. Bill Schweitzer. Uh, You have the information, I'm sure, in front of you. Um, wonderful things to be said about this about this man, but uh, he would not want me to to go into those uh, those sorts of things. Um, uh, I know him well enough to know that we want uh, the praise to go to the Lord. So we praise God and we honor the man, and we are thankful that God has raised him up to preach the gospel in the north of England. He's about an hour, hour and a half from where our son lives, and I was so appreciative that he actually took the time to, uh, to spend, to spend uh, an afternoon with my son and was very appreciative of, of that work. Um, a Jonathan Edwards scholar, um, a biblical uh, preacher of the word, a church planter in England where things are very, very difficult and hard as they are throughout Europe. Last week, actually, Bill and his family and Vicki and I uh, spent the weekend together at a missions conference in another church in another state. So, uh, Bill, where shall we meet next week? Have we, have we thought about that? But, uh, but it was a real privilege to be with Bill and Pam and their, and their children. So I would ask that you pray. Um, Bill loves the Lord and desires to preach his word. His family's only been back here, I think, a little over a week and a half from England. This is already his second missions conference, and uh, there is much strain and stress, I'm sure, just in get, getting settled in. They'll be living in the Savannah area uh, during this, uh, during this uh, time of home ministry assignment. May the Lord bless you, Bill. We're delighted that you're here, and I'm just thankful you're an humble man who loves the Lord and uh, has strong biblical convictions and desires to preach his word. Well, let me say it is a great privilege and honor to be with you again. We love being at this church. We have the greatest admiration and respect for your dear minister. And we bring to you greetings from the church in Gateshead. Well, my text this morning is from Job chapter 19, verses 23 to 29 in particular. I apologize that I have changed the title. I'll give it to you in just a moment. Sometimes sermons in Job uh, take their cue from what is said in James chapter 5 about it, the patience of Job, and the sermon has something to do with that. But this morning I wish to speak to you instead about the gospel of Job. Now, I want to say this from the outset, that Job is not easy for many reasons. For one thing, as you probably know, we don't have a very lot in in terms of historical setting about Job. We don't know all that much about when he lived or where he lived. All we have is what is there in the first verse. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that's it. 
We think he lived sometime before Moses. We have some small rough clue with regard to the length of his life. He lived 140 years. You know that lifespan steadily declined after the flood. And so that puts him maybe sometime after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who all lived 175 to 180 years. But maybe just a little bit before Moses at 120 years. But basically we just say he lived sometime during the time, the era of the patriarchs. And this is a time when mankind was in possession of not even one of the books of sacred scripture. Not even one. And the question is, how did Job know God? Well, there would be some things handed down by tradition from Noah. And we know, even as we have illustrated so powerfully at the end of this book, that, jo- that God used to, in those times, speak directly to man. But even still... This is a time of great darkness. Mainly, mainly beyond those things, there is a matter of trying to make sense of the message of Job. We know the basics of what what happened. We know them. Job was a good man. He was upright. He feared God. And Satan stood up to accuse him. And God, in his wisdom allowed Satan to bring terrible things against him, against his family, against his person, to demonstrate to all the world the reality of Job's faith and all, of course, to the glory of God. The the thing is that Job did not have all that information. We know it, but he didn't. And he simply does not understand why this has happened to him. And while we are very thankful that Job never departs from his faith... After the death of his children and after the loss of all of his possessions, he says in Job 1.20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped God. Could you do that, by the way? The moment after you lost all of your children, all of your possessions, could you worship God? Here's what he says in verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. And then after it goes the next stage, in the next chapter, Satan has to do more and he does more. And he's racked with this dreadful disease from the top of his head down to the bottom of his feet. Horribly painful. And his wife tells him to curse God and die. And what does he say in Job 2.10? Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not also accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. But you may notice that that second statement is just a little bit weaker than the first. And it lacks that statement, nor charge God with wrong, because perhaps that's an indication in the Word of God that very soon Job will charge God with wrong, or something very close to it. He will say things like what we have in, the next, in this very chapter, our chapter, chapter 19. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. And for these reasons, God has to rebuke him out of the whirlwind. And Job immediately repents and he says in Job 42.3, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful to me, which I did not know. Therefore I repent in dust and ashes. Like maybe the question is occurring to you. 
If this man lived in a time of such great darkness, and if by his own admission he did not himself understand what he's saying, what good is this book to us? How can it speak to us? Well, the answer, of course, is it is part of sacred scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, which every Christian should know as much as John 3.16, says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We know it's useful to us for these reasons. And also we know why it's useful to us. Because it was given by inspiration of God and Job spoke as an inspired prophet. So even though he did not fully understand everything that he was saying. And he was certainly not able to put it all together and judge his own situation rightly. He yet spoke words of profound eternal truth that are for our spiritual benefit. Indeed we read in our own chapter 19 verse 23. Oh that my words were written. That they were inscribed in a book that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pin and lead forever, and so they were. And so they were, and they are for us today. So I want us to consider the gospel of Job, not his patience this time, the gospel of Job. What are the things that Job knew, and what are the things that he believed when he said, I know my Redeemer lives? Well, there's these four things I would have as points of this sermon. The first is that there is a God. The second, there is a judgment for sinners. Third, there is a Redeemer. And fourth, there is a a resurrection of life for believers. There is a God. There is a judgment for sinners. There is a Redeemer. And there is a resurrection of life for believers. So our first point, there is a God. Now all throughout this book and chapter... In the whole Bible, of course, Job assumes that God exists. And what I love, what I love is that even in the very words that he's speaking in verse 6, which you've already mentioned, words that he would soon enough repent of, know then that God has wronged me. He knows that there is a God. Now I understand that this is a very basic point, but please don't pass it by. I was tempted to pass it by, but don't. We should not pass over this in silence, whether in Job's day or in ours, as your minister said, a day of great unbelief. There is a God. Now, of course, this whole universe exists because God desired to make Himself known to His creatures, to display His glory to them. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Therefore, the fact that He exists and the public knowledge that He exists, these are not things that are indifferent to God's people. We love that and we want to make it known. We are not indifferent about that. We take it seriously. Now I'm reminded of those stirring words of David to Goliath right before he slays him. What does he say? 1 Samuel 17. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen to that. I wonder whether we live our lives, I wonder whether we speak our words in such a way that there's a conscious desire That our neighbors and our co-workers and our relatives and so forth might know that there is a God in Israel. 
And we know him. We believe in him. We serve him. Now this knowledge, however basic it might seem, is yet a most comforting thing to God's people. Most comforting thing. I was speaking to two of your young men who have, like I, uh, trained in, in Scotland. And the man who taught me theology at the Free Church College in Edinburgh, he had been plunged into the abyss of atheistic philosophy and thinking during his time at university. So often what universities are about, aren't they? To teach atheism. And he had fallen for it. And he was there falling. And he was floundering, wondering whether there was a God. And deeply fearful that there was none. And then one day in the grace of God, one day he came to the realization to the word of God, to the things that had been taught in his childhood, that there is a God. We are not alone in this universe. There is a God. And it was of indescribable comfort to this man. He's there. God, whether he takes notice of us or not, such a thing is of great comfort to God's people. He is there. Now beyond that, we cannot forget that this is the most basic element of saving faith. Hebrews 11 tells us all about faith, doesn't it? And it says in Hebrews 11:6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That's the first thing. Before it goes on to say anything else, you must believe that he is. That is the most basic element of saving faith, to know that God is. Now it is also true what we read in James 2, 19, which you'll surely point out to me. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And the problem, you see, with the demons is not with their knowledge of God's existence. They know a lot of true things. Jonathan Edwards said, you know, Satan is no heretic. He is no Arminian. He is no Arian. He knows the truth about God. He doesn't like it. He hates it. But he knows the truth. The elements of saving faith begin with the knowledge of God. You cannot believe in a God whom you know nothing about. But then beyond that, of course, you must receive these things. You must ascend to them and you must put your trust in them. But it all starts with knowing that there is a God as Job most certainly did. That is the core of the gospel of Job. Now secondly, I want us to see that there is a judgment for sinners. There is a God... And secondly, there is a judgment for sinners. In the very last verse of our chapter, it says, Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Now, what part of the gospel is that? I thought the gospel meant good news. Why are you telling me about this judgment? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you that this is a necessary part of the gospel. Not just of Job, but of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when I heard the gospel preached not so long ago, and not very far away from where we stand, 
Yes, in Tampa, North Tampa, I heard the gospel preached more than once, but it did nothing for me. I didn't receive it. Do you know why? What was the problem? Because it kept talking about you can be saved. And I'm thinking, from what? Who cares about Jesus? And who cares about his salvation? I'm fine. Because relatively speaking, at least in my own mind, I was a pretty good kid. And I had no need for good news of which I had no bad news. Do you understand how that goes? If I'm going to ask you, if as a physician, let's say I'm a physician and I, I ask you, I would like you, if you don't mind, for me to cut out some part of your body that you'd otherwise need. And then I'm going to subject you to some horrible chemical that will make you lose all of your hair and make you feel terribly sick for weeks and weeks and months. And then if you survive that, I might give you some radiation as well. And what are you going to say to that? No thanks, doctor. I don't need that. What you needed to hear first was, you have pancreatic cancer. And it spread to other parts of your body. You needed to hear something like that. And then, and then, the fact that there might be some hope somewhere to save your life would come as good news to you. Well, let me tell you, that is the way it is with the gospel. And that is something that is so lacking from gospel presentations in our day, unfortunately. We are so desirous of keeping people from being uncomfortable. So desirous to, to fit in with, with the things that they already know. That we forget that they need to hear the reality that there is a judgment. That is why we preach the gospel to them. There is a judgment. Now, of course, this is assuming, Job is assuming not only that God exists, this is part of the theology of Job, because Job's theology is feeding into his gospel. This is assuming not only that God exists, but also that he is a holy God, and one that will punish sin. And he is very right to say that. Now, specifically, we always want to look at the specifics of the text, not all just generalities or things that are true, but what does Job mean when he says, for wrath brings the judgment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. And I think what he means is this. That some of the things that happen on earth, some of the temporal punishments that happen, things that happen right now, are microcosms. Things that point to something that happens in eternity. It's an analogy. Things happen now and is pointing to the reality that there is yet a greater judgment that is to come. That's part of what Paul says in the book of Romans. You know, they speak, for instance, of the, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. How is it being revealed from heaven against unbelievers and un, ungodly people? It's being revealed by his, his judgment of handing him over, handing sinners over to their sin in various ways. Now again, in our day, sometimes people think that this is the substance of the wrath of God or of hell. And they say, well, you know, God is just handing us over to the things that we have chosen. That's not what Romans chapter 1 is about. You want to hear about hell, you keep going on in the book of Romans. But Romans chapter 1 is not dealing about the ultimate wrath of God. It is dealing with the foretaste that is simply as a signpost pointing and saying, watch out. These are the things that happen now because there is a God and He is holy. And even in this life there are foretastes of what is yet to come because He will judge sinners. But these things come as a warning to us. And that's the application to Job's friends. That's what he says. Be afraid of that judgment. And there is great wisdom in those words. Great wisdom. 
You look around at people, the things that they say and the things that they, they do, and you say, do you not know that there is a judgment? And their answer is, no, they don't. Or at least they don't want to keep these things in their mind. They want to escape from it. They don't want to acknowledge it. And sadly, if that's the case, how then are they going to turn away from their sins? They're not going to until they come to believe what Job believed, that there is a judgment to come. But not only is there a God, and not only is there a judgment to come, because truly, if that was the end of it, that wouldn't be very good news. But now we come to the heart of it. The third point is, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. Well, the question is, what is a Redeemer? We don't have them. I don't think I could go to you and ask you in, in terms of things that we have in our own society, who's your Redeemer, by the way? You wouldn't have it. But they did back then, you understand. That was part of this setup. Certainly part of the, the, the assumed and enshrined in the Old Testament law of Moses. There's a Redeemer. Hugely important concept. And the Redeemer was a rich and powerful relative whose main function was to deliver their kinsmen who had fallen into big trouble. And you know, you have an example, don't you? Some of you know the, the book of Ruth, right? And you remember the wonderful news that Ruth has been gleaning in, by accident, gleaning in someone's been fields and comes back to the mother-in-law and, and where have you been gleaning? And oh, it's in, in the, the fields of Boaz. She says, well, well, this man, it comes across as, as a near kinsman, but no, it's a goel. He's a redeemer, you see. Praise God, you just happen to be in the field of your redeemer. Now, the interesting thing to me is that Job himself, as by far the richest and most powerful man of his family, would have been the redeemer for all the others. If someone else in his family had fallen into deep trouble, they'd be calling out to Job. Now what is Job going to do? Who is he going to turn to as his redeemer when he falls into such tough times? Well, again, these things point beyond themselves. There was no help for Job, humanly speaking. No one is going to bring his children back from the dead. No one could have... It could have saved him from this terrible dread disease which filled his body and was destroying him. There was no redeemer in that sense. But you cannot read this book and you cannot read this chapter in thinking that he was thinking only of things in this world. He was thinking of something to come. He was thinking of things of eternity. And we know what the catechism says. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Job somehow knew about this Redeemer. Now I say, surely there was some question as to whether Job was able to put all these pieces together. I know that. But isn't that amazing that he knew about his Redeemer? Now you know, I, I suspect that there was not even a single day on earth in which there was no hint of the gospel. 
You know that in, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first part, the first promise ever given with the, the seed of the woman who's going to save her and her seed. And he's going to crush the seed of the serpent. And that happened, by the way. That promise was given even before he gets around to cursing the man and the woman. Well, we know that those things and many others came down through tradition from Noah. We know that there was probably some other ways in which God enabled Job to know these things. But one thing we can say that it was a work of supernatural grace for Job to know it. And it is, if you know that today, if you know that your Redeemer lives, if you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and He reigns, then that is a work of supernatural grace as well. Because Peter said, Jesus said it to Peter when he made that confession, you are the Son of God, you're the Christ. You know what he said? Flesh and blood. I've not revealed that to you. You didn't figure that out yourself. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. That is a work of supernatural grace. If you this morning can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, now let's just put some other things that he says. What else does Job know regarding his Redeemer? Well, one thing he knows that God is his enemy. That's what it says in Job 19.11. He has also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. And in that much he is absolutely correct in some sense. Now, we already said that he misapplied it. We already said he didn't quite understand everything that was happening to him. And he wrongly charged God with wrong. But this thing is true. That as sinners, in ourselves, we are the enemies of God. We stand under his wrath and his curse. Every son of Adam, born in sin and iniquity and under the wrath of God. And in that much, Job is right about it. But do you know what else Job knew? It's amazing to me. Job knew that atonement must be provided for sin. Do you remember? I don't know if you've read this book, but do you remember what he did for his children when they were still alive in chapter 1? Job 1.5 So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would sin and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus... Job did regularly. He understood that sin has a price to be paid, that atonement must be paid. Thus, Job did regularly. That connection was so clear in his mind. Now, Isaiah 53 had not yet been written. He did not know all of these things about the Redeemer. But surely, if this Redeemer was going to do for him even what he did for his children... There must be a payment for sin. And we know maybe something that he didn't. That that payment could only come by the death of our Redeemer. That he paid for our sins on that old rugged cross. And yet he rose on the third day. He died for our sins. And yet he has risen And that we with Job can say the very same thing, that I know my Redeemer lives because He is the risen Messiah. And this day, like all others, whether there's a Lord's table set before us or not, we remember the Lord's death until He comes. Not just His death, but also His resurrection. And He says, I know my Redeemer lives. 
The thing is that although the content of Job's faith was far less than ours, virtually everyone here is going to know some more theology than Job probably knew. But the thing is, he knew it. He was certain about it. He didn't just know them in some theoretical sense. He believed them as well. He was in the very depth of despair. He was in the midst of the most severe trial imaginable. When you put yourself, whatever trials that you face, next to the trials that Job faced, I don't want to belittle your trials. But I don't know how they could compare to what Job suffered. And yet he says, I know my Redeemer lives. Hmm. Now we're going to speak more of this in the application because we are here for a missions conference. But it is in this connection, the connection between the knowledge of the truth and salvation that lies at the heart of all mission work. It is this knowledge of the truth that is saving. And God works through His ordinary means. He works through the preaching of the gospel to bring people to salvation. Job knew that his Redeemer lives and he was saved. God calls him my servant Job. Now we don't know how he came to know that. And we praise God that whatever means were sufficient to bring him to that knowledge. But how thankful we are that things did not end that way with such a relatively constrained dissemination of the truth in such a few places and so relatively few people saved. Millions upon millions, even in this day, millions upon millions have come to the saving knowledge of Christ. There are many, many more millions and billions who have not heard and who do not know. And if you were to say, my Redeemer lives, they would say, I don't even know what you're talking about. They need to hear as well. One more thing before I move on. Notice he says, and he shall stand at last on the earth. I won't dwell on this, but I want you to dwell on it. He shall stand at last on the earth. Pointing, as so many of the prophecies did, both to the first coming and to the second coming of Christ. We're sometimes afraid of eschatology because of the excesses and the strange teachings about it. But ladies and gentlemen, if we want to live a proper life in this world, we need to understand that Christ is returning. Christ is coming and he says, I'm coming soon. We must live our lives in the knowledge of that truth. Now, fourthly and finally, there is a God, there is a judgment, there is a Redeemer, and finally, there is a resurrection of life for believers. It says in verse 26, And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. After my skin is destroyed. And and that's a good thing that Job has got this plan in place of what's going to happen when his flesh is destroyed. Because it's just about done. You think about this situation of him scraping his scabs on sitting on the, the, the sackcloth and ashes in this horrible disease that covered him with boils and scabs from head to toe. His skin was close enough to being destroyed. It's a good thing that he has a plan for when it will be destroyed. But you know what? I do not at all cast aspersion on your physical appearance. It's a good-looking congregation. But you know what? We may not be covered head to toe with boils and scabs, but we, like Paul says, do always walk around in this body of death. Because we were born in sin and iniquities, 
Our bodies are necessarily in a state of decay from the moment that we are born. Things begin to go wrong with us. And these things accumulate one upon another. And little things become bigger things. And even all the signs of aging that we have, even our mere hair turning gray, point that our cells are dying. We're not going to be there forever. We're in this state of death. And some of us have longer than others. But we are all dying. We are all, as it were, walking corpses. And the question is, what's going to happen after that? When our flesh, when our skin is destroyed, what is going to happen? Mm. Well, Job knew. Job knew. In fact, strangely, he says, when his flesh is destroyed, that in my flesh I shall see God. Isn't that a strange thing? After it's destroyed, after my body is destroyed, then in my body I'm going to see God. It's an amazing statement. Particularly amazing if you believe what the liberals and the critics say, that, that the Old Testament believers had no idea about a resurrection, had no idea about the afterlife, only concerned about things in this world. Of course, that's not true. He says he's going to live. He says he's going to do it in his own body. He clearly believes in the resurrection. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful for the intermediate state. When we die, if we die right now, and you're you're in Christ, you're a believer, you go immediately to be with Christ, your soul does, but your body remains in the ground. You can see it. But one day there will also be a resurrection, which in body and in soul, in your own body, though glorified, you will see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the thing. He says he's going to live not just to see anything. He's going to live to see God because that is his great hope. That is the thing that he's looking forward to, to see his God who has destroyed him in this world, who has put him through many trials. This God in whose hand that he was and all the rest of us are, and God for his own good and just ends, who brings us through many trials in this world, some of them terrible. He desired to see his God. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want to see God? He says this in verse 27, How my heart yearns within me. How my heart yearns within me. Jonathan Edwards said that heaven is a world of love. And that there we're going to swim in an ocean of love. You know why? Because there the triune God, who is the very definition and source of all true love, will be there. And we will see Him. Now to you, as we try to apply these things briefly to ourselves, I ask the question, do you know what Job knew? Do you believe what he believed? We never assume that all those who come to church are believers. Even a very good church like this one. We never assume that. You know, you have so much more light than Job. You have such great privileges. You hear this word of God, the whole canon of Scripture opened by a faithful man of God. But do you believe it? Do you believe what Job believed? That there is a God. That there will be a judgment for sinners like you. That there is a Redeemer. Laid down his life to save us. For all those who believe that there will be this resurrection of life. Do you believe that? 
And secondly, I would say, if you believe that, then I, I would say a good idea for you to do would be to send that light to other people who haven't heard yet. We're amazed that Job knew as much as he did. What, what, you think of what terrible darkness that the world lived in underneath that, that time. Not just before the time of Christ, but even as we think before the time of Moses, they had so little of the Word of God. And you feel like, if only I could be sent in a time machine back to that dark place, and I could go around and I could tell people. I could even tell Job, let me tell you something about this Redeemer. He has a name. It's Jesus. Did you know that? And, and here's what he did, and here's what he said. He died on a Roman cross and he rose again the third day. And all the things you could say, you could go around teaching people in their great darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say it is not just something, a good idea that you and I might think. It's actually our commandment from God. This is what the church is supposed to be doing. That's the great commission. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's just not our permission to go into this dark world and tell them things kept secret since the world began, things shrouded in mystery that the angels desired to look into. No, we're commanded to do that. If you do it, and you either go or you sin. Some of you, I was saying, again, not so long ago I was in your seat. I was at a missions conference and I had only the vaguest of interest in world missions, I will tell you. But the Lord eventually brought me onto the missions field. Maybe you're to go. But if you're not going, then you can certainly be sending because we all have to be obedient to this command, that's for sure. And if you're going to send, then that means you've got to give. And if you're going to give, then please do it generously. Do it to the glory of God. God loves a cheerful giver. If you want to be part of this missions endeavor, it is not cheap. Let me tell you, living in England, working there is not cheap. Give. And if you're going to pray, because some of you don't have much to give. We all have something to but if you're going to pray, then pray fervently. And you're going to pray and pray with faith. Because I desperately need it. The other missionaries here, they need it too. Because nothing happens of ultimate importance apart from the prayers of God's people. Pray to the glory of God fervently and faithfully. May God bless your efforts in so doing. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we know that you are. You are and you are not silent. You have spoken to us. And we are thankful, Lord, for the light that you have granted to us, sinners that we are. We are thankful, Lord God, that we can say with Job that I know my Redeemer lives this day. We are thankful for the enormous privilege that we have of having the gospel. Lord, how we pray for those who do not. We ask, Lord, that you would use this church in a mighty way, as you have done, but even more so. That, Lord, all who are not going, we pray that there would be more who go. But all who are not, that they would sin, and they would sin to the glory of God. That you'd grant them to give generously, 
and to pray with abandon and with faith and with fervency for those whom you send, that you might be glorified, and there might be untold millions more who can say with Job and with ourselves that I know my Redeemer lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.